This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Happy New Year to all of you, and let's hope that 2022 is better than 2021. Our, our main hope for 2022, which I think we expressed reasonably well in our last show, is that folks wake up. The Biden administration primarily wakes up to the threat to our democracy. Roughly one year ago, on January 6, 2021, Donald Trump attempted to overthrow the government of the United States. And he's going to try again. We're not sure the nation or world will survive four more years of a Donald Trump presidency. Well, to be honest, if he gets four more years, he's not going to be satisfied with just four. We're pretty sure there won't be an election in 2028, or at least there won't be one that matters. Anyway, let's lighten the mood a little bit by jumping right into the good, the bad, and the ugly. use the week magazine for these as we often do and would note that it was recently a bad week for cancel culture that would be in quotes cancel culture in quotes after counterconference a quote anti cancel culture unquote event to be held in London with such controversial right-wing speakers as Britain's Nigel Farage and former Trump advisor Jason Miller alas was itself canceled the reason Low ticket sales. On the other hand, it was a bad week recently for alleged proof of voter fraud in the 2020 presidential election when it turned out that a Nevada man who claimed that he had proof of voter fraud in the 2020 presidential election had to himself plead guilty to voter fraud in the election. Donald Hardy, age 55, a Republican, said last November that it was sickening to learn that someone had voted in his late wife Rosemary's name, suggesting that that revealed widespread voter fraud. Well, apparently a few weeks back, Hardy had to admit that he had used Rosemary's ballot to vote twice. He was sentenced to probation and a $2,000 fine. Of course, now when you look back at it, when this man claimed that he had proof of voter fraud, he knew what he was talking about. And it was a kind of an ugly week a few weeks back for former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who, after a national tour that included interviews on nearly all the major networks, it turned out it sold only 2,200 copies of his new book on saving the Republican Party, which I think underscores what we talked about previously, that there's not a major effort underway to reform the Republican Party. All right, let's do another round on this. It was a good week recently, we would have to say, for political correctness the news that the Women's March apologized for a Thanksgiving email which thanked supporters for their average donation, which turned out to be $14.92. Said the organization, we apologize deeply for today's email using the number 1492. 
adding, it was an oversight on our part not to make the connection to a year of colonization, conquest, and genocide for indigenous people, especially before Thanksgiving. Yes, folks, this is how far the discovery, in quotes, of America by Christopher Columbus has fallen. Even, apparently, the numerical figure $14.92 now has to be censured. Causes me to ask, what, have we run out of real issues? And it was recently a bad week for journalists with the news that a secretive Customs and Border Protection Unit used government databases meant for tracking terrorists to instead investigate as many as 20 U.S.-based journalists in 2017. This included reporters at Politico.com and the New York Times, and a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative writer at the Associated Press. According to a Department of Homeland Security watchdog report uncovered by Yahoo News a few weeks back, the CBP division routinely used sensitive databases to obtain travel, financial, and personal records of journalists, government officials, and congressional offices. Does this seem like a good use of your tax dollars? And it was an ugly week recently for honest mistakes when Fordham University fired an English lecturer after he mixed up the names of two black students when one arrived at class late. The female students said they were not actually that upset and they only wanted Christopher Trogrant to apologize, but found his response that he had devoted his entire life to racial justice as evidence of white savior complex. Well, you hate to see that. Anyway, we think the whole thing's pretty dumb. But actually, we got a couple more ugly items that are even dumber. We'd have to say that it was an ugly week this past week when this news came out that the home fitness company, Peloton, saw its stock price tumble after a main character on HBO's Sex and the City reboot, which is, I guess, entitled And Just Like That, dropped dead following a ride on a Peloton stationary bike. Again, the main character fell dead. Evidently, in a shocking first episode twist, Mr. Big, played by Chris North, dies after a 45-minute ride. Within days, Peloton released a response ad featuring North playing a revived Mr. Big as narrator, saying what? I guess, hey, I'm still alive, really? You know, TV ain't reality? And I guess while they revive Mr. Big, the narrator rattles off the many health benefits of cycling. Peloton said there was no product placement deal with, and just like that, no, I wouldn't think so. And while the company knew real-life instructor Jesse King would appear in the show, it didn't know the bike ride would kill Mr. Big. Peloton, this just gets better. Peloton also released a statement from cardiologist Suzanne Steinbaum saying Mr. Big's, quote, extravagant lifestyle, unquote, of, quote, cocktails, cigars, and big steaks, unquote, put him at serious risk. And apparently, as of yet, there's been no further response from distillers, makers of cigars, or the meat industry. Chris, now as an addendum, we do have to note that Mr. McMillan states for the record, he has never purchased any dynamite from the Acme Company after watching Roadrunner cartoons. Yes. How stupid can you get, you ask? Well, hold on. And our final ugly item of the week, we have this. This is actually from a couple weeks ago, but apparently at that time, Missouri's State Health Department conducted an analysis of mask wearing 
and concluded it substantially cut infection and death rates. But guess what? It didn't share that with the public. Evidently, Republican Governor Mike Parson, who asked for the study because he opposes mask mandates, didn't answer queries about why those results got hidden. Mr. Mellon suggested in future installments of his program, we may need to move away from the good, the bad, and the ugly and substitute the stupid, the stupider, and the stupidest. On last week's program, we mentioned taking a little side trip down to take a look at the, uh, the, the Butterfly Reserve down in Pacific Grove, California, and I, I didn't really actually say anything about that. Um, I do have some good news to report. The butterflies apparently are back in larger numbers than they have been of late, and people are cautiously optimistic that they may be in the process of bouncing back. We sure hope so. On a personal level, I have a note in my own Bay Area backyard. I saw, I think, one year before last and saw several this past summer. I guess they were flying down toward Monterey County. I hope so. It's a beautiful animal. Let's hope it can make it. Another animal we're going to wish well would be the clam. In this case, the Pismo Beach clam. A recent article in the LA Times notes that Pismo Beach was once called the clam capital of the world. Well, it was up till the moment when the clams all disappeared. And I would note that I can well remember clamming in the Martins Beach area of Half Moon Bay. It seems like not that long ago, but alas, as I think about it, it was a half century and more. There were lots of clams down there. People used to go down there with clamming forks, pull them through the sand, and pull up lots of clams, which made some pretty damn good clam chowder. But what do you know? They all disappeared too. And... um Although they act as though this is kind of a mystery as to why the clams disappear, the second you start reading about how they were managed, you think that the mystery really shouldn't be there. The article in the LA Times opens with this. More than a century ago, farmers with horse-drawn plows would comb the sand and haul off clams by the wagon full. The meat was fed to hogs. Softball-sized bivalves were so abundant they could be found rolling ashore by the dozen at high tide. Yeah, well, they still have a clam festival at Pismo Beach. Uh, they they had one this year, uh, even though they were closed up back in the uh, you know COVID for COVID reasons the year before. But wouldn't you know it? Local clams have not been in their clam chowders since 1947, about the time the commercial clam fishery closed up its doors. Still, notes the piece, recreational clamors reportedly dug up the shellfish by the millions through the 50s and the thousands through the 1970s. But the last time someone found a clam large enough to keep legally was 1993. Here's the part I I like. At At the bottom of this first page, it says, which is why scientists are trying to answer a perplexing question. What happened to the Pismo clam? Which Mr. McMillan posits is right up there with, who's buried in Grant's tomb? Well, I think I can answer this question for the scientists. Taking out all of the clams is why there's no more clams. The piece admits that clam poaching does remain a problem. What happens here is that, well, back in the day when my grandma and grandpa and mom and dad used to go down to the beach with clam forks and they would pull these creatures out of the sand, they had to reach a certain size limit. I still have the bar that was used to to tell whether you had a legal clam or not. I I also remember with with some regret, my dear grandma, who who loved clams, uh, was known to look around for a game warden, and if there wasn't one present, take one that was undersized and eat that one right there on the beach. Yeah, like oysters, there are people who, you know, enjoy their mollusks live. But uh, the article does say that um, this population declined in the early 1980s. 
uh, is a mystery. And then they, one explanation is, well, it's the sea otter. You know, the sea otter was nearly hunted to extinction uh, in, the, in the 18th and 19th centuries, but now it's, now it's come back, to which I step back and go, wow, are you stupid? This reminds me of when I had a checkout scuba dive back in college. And even though we were going to be diving near what today is the Monterey Bay Aquarium, we were told by our instructors, oh, you're not going to see, uh, don't, you won't see any abalone down there. They've been cleaned out by the sea otters. As we went down to the beach putting on our neoprene, I looked around at the dozens, if not scores, if not hundreds of people in wetsuits along the beach, at which point I turned to one of my fellow students and said, boy, yeah, it's terrible. These sea otters have just cleaned this place out. If you know anything about biology, and we hope you do, you, you're probably aware of the fact that before they were wiped out by fur traders, there were millions of sea otters along the coast of California. There were also plenty of abalone and clams. Don't blame the otters. Anyway, the article mentions that it takes 10 to 14 years for a clam to reach a, a size where it can be legally harvested. And the good news at the bottom of all this is that they appear to be making something of a comeback. I had a marine biologist as a patient uh, some years back, and he specialized in, I think, um, invertebrates and, and told me that given half a chance and the ability of these animals to spawn and disperse their, uh, their young'uns all over the coast, the clams will make a comeback if they're just let alone. And we don't mean by the sea otters. By the way, there's been a catastrophic decline in a starfish species that used to prey upon sea urchins off the, off the California coast. And in the wake of this lack of predation, the urchin population has exploded and seems to be eating its way through our kelp beds. Sea otters enjoy a meal of sea urchin, and we just wish them well and hope they could eat as all they can, all they can handle. Anyway, the punchline good news out of all this is that Cal Poly researchers down there in Pismo Beach they apparently counted and measured 35,000 clams in three days of surveying, which was more than they'd found in the previous five years of research. So maybe the clams will make it back. I've still got my clamming forks. They look like antique museum pieces at this, pl- at this point, but hey, maybe one day I'll be clamming again. Actually, it's funny. As I just mentioned the otters, I'm pulling up a piece that was from, from Discover Magazine talking about this very thing. The kelp beds apparently are under siege, uh, both from the urchins and warmer water. And wouldn't you know it, at the end of the piece, it's sort of answering uh, what I was hoping for. Notes Discover Magazine, at these observed sites, the ur- as the urchin populations grow, the otters' diet shifted to become more heavily reliant upon urchins. In fact, the otters were eating three times as many urchins as they had before 2014. As a result, they provided crucial protection from urchins to the remaining kelp forests. And if you're worried about uh, global warming and what it may do to the kelp beds, and we hope you are, we're going to add one more worry to your concerns. It may affect your beer. Article in New Scientist magazine notes that water, malted barley, and hops is the classic recipe for the world's favorite intoxicant. The Germans even have a law dating back to 1516, at least in Bavaria they do, stating that that's, those are the only three things that can go into beer. Well, I think they're leaving out the yeasts, but I guess, I guess they just assumed they would show up. This article mentions something that I was somewhat unaware of, that beer naturally tends to be rather sweet. To give it that added bitterness that people enjoy so much, they have to add in the hops. They didn't always use hops. The piece notes that in England, hops were dubbed the wicked weed, 
and their traditional ales were brewed without them. They instead used a variety of botanicals to flavor their beer. If you can believe this, some of the things they used, well, they used something they called gruit, which was evidently a mix of bitter herbs, flowers, or roots, including dandelion, burdock, sweet gale, mugwort, ground ivy, yarrow, horsehound, and sage. By the time you got to 1516 and those Bavarian laws, they threw out the gruit and they replaced it with hops. Partly, it says, because the gruit herbs were also used in pagan rituals. Can't have that. Although, I don't know. If you look at the, the, the film and pictures of what goes on at, at Oktoberfest, it looks like a giant pagan ritual to me. And it may well be, only now it's with hops. And it, this, is, this is really, I, I find, very interesting. The breakthrough for hops came when it was discovered they had preservative functions. Unhopped beer can apparently go off in a matter of weeks. But if you boil your hops before you use them in the brewing process, it releases bitter preserving resins that allow hopped beer to last for years. Now, the future problem for beer lovers is that hops like cold temperatures. In fact, they appreciate winter nights where the temperature drops below freezing. With global warming, nights are warming up faster than days and we're seeing less freezing. Anyway, we have to admit uh, this, this threat from global warming is probably less pressing than the, say, flooding of coastal cities. But uh, doggone it, it's just another reason why we should drop down those uh, greenhouse gases. Now, Mr. McMillan, of course, has been biting his tongue throughout all of this because, well, the truth be told, he detests beer. I don't detest beer. I detest the flavor of beer. Oh, well, thank you for clarifying. Although I don't know if I've had beer without hops. I might like that. Maybe so. All right, calling Professor Bamford. Yeah, we interviewed a professor of brewing at UC Davis. He was a, he was a rollicking good time, and we refer you to our archives if you missed that on the first go-through. Since we're talking about global warming, however peripherally, we should add, there's an opinion piece in New Scientist that we liked from last October, which gave some cause for optimism, and noted that grasslands are being overlooked as a key means of combating global warming which needs to change, according to author Gil Perkins. And when you know it, permanent grasslands hold about a third of Earth's terrestrial carbon. With more grasslands, especially more biodiverse grasslands, we can get, you know, quite a bit more natural carbon storage. But instead of expanding the habitats, we risk losing them. The past hundred years has seen this terrain destroyed in what's described as a terrifying scale. Since the beginning of the 20th century, the UK alone lost at least 97% of its meadows. The tall grass prairie that in the U.S. once covered 170 million acres is down to 4% of what it used to be. The piece notes the grasslands are often seen as empty spaces, there to be plowed and sown and built on. Their destruction is not met with the same angst as deforestation by the public or by politicians. But it turns out the organization to which Gil Perkins belongs, the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, has joined a group to push the protection and reforestation of species-rich grasslands to the top of our global political agenda. We wish them well in this. In my own backyard, I have let the grass grow, and I use it to, uh, <laughs> to, to pull it up and feed the rabbits and leave in place to put carbon back into the soil and sometimes to compost. When I finally got around to turning my compost pile and extracting from it uh, the, the end product, compost, and spreading out all over my, my beds, 
I was sort of stunned to realize that I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds of pounds of biomass. And it wasn't soggy stuff, too. It had a fairly low moisture content. So uh, I don't know. I guess I'm doing my part, thanks to grass. We do want to add that that COP26 climate summit, which was just held, uh, did submit a plan for saving the world's trees by 2030. Sadly, whatever it is they agreed to, which seems a little bit vague, uh, is not binding. New scientists reported that there is little detail in the new declaration on how the goal will be met, deforestation. They might pay countries for preventing projected clearances or, well, they're not even sure how the progress is going to be monitored. I can tell you this, cutting down all the trees in the Amazonian rainforest to plant more farms is not going to take us where we need to go. So let's hope, among other things, they can replace Bolsonaro as president, who is gung-ho to uh, chop down the forests. As we mentioned on last week's program, underlying uh, the problem of of global warming and the fact that we're producing so much more carbon, uh, underlying all of that is the fact that the world's population is growing and growing and growing, and the new people we're adding to the world want the cool stuff that the world can provide. This cannot go on, and yet... (laughs) I noticed among the headlines, which what I, I think should be good news, well, it's just reported like this is a disaster. For example, the pro-business publication, The Economist, which, which we rely upon because it's got some pretty good reporting, uh, in its summary of 2021, took a look at what was going on in Japan and presented it to them as a dire photo of an inverted pyramid. And the thrust of the article is about how Japan is lowering uh, the age you need to be to be considered an adult. They're dropping it down from 20 to 18, starting in April. Eh, but The Economist is very pessimistic about it, saying it's just not going to change this inverted pyramid. There's not enough young people to pay for the old people. Well, if that strategy of keep bringing on new people to, to take care of the old people continues around the world, we're not going to have much world for much longer. In a parallel article in the same publication, The Economist, they note that India's population, and they appeared to be shocked by this, India's fertility rate has fallen below replacement level, which I'll believe when I see. Now, this has got to be pretty big news since India represents one-fifth of humanity with 1.4 billion people. Actually, as I thumb through this article, it's, it's even, it's dumber than I thought. The Economist notes the number of Indians will still continue to grow because many young women have yet to reach childbearing age. But a lower fertility means the population will peak sooner and at a lower figure. Not in 40 years, at more than 1.7 billion, as has been widely predicted, but probably a decade earlier at perhaps 1.6 billion. Oh, I'm so relieved. That's 100 million fewer Indians. And please, dear listener, don't take that the wrong way. Mr. Millen and I are very pro-Indian. I am pro-Indian sociologically, and Mr. McMillan is pro-Indian both sociologically and genetically. And he married an Indian, too. And speaking of reduced population growth, the population in the United States grew by only 0.1% last year. We still have 331.8 million people in this country. I don't know, for my money, this is an upside to the pandemic. And no, we're not saying the huge number of casualties and deaths due to COVID was a good thing. And in fact, the authorities don't, don't, don't attribute this, uh, this slowed population growth merely to casualties. 
During the pandemic, there was a decrease in immigration and a lot of people delayed pregnancies. And by the way, CBS News is reporting that the Kaiser Family Foundation took a look back at our COVID pandemic, and they estimated 163,000 COVID deaths in the U.S. could have been prevented by vaccination. As it stands right now, 28% of U.S. adults remain unvaccinated, and some health officials expect the death toll to hit a million in the next few months. I'm sorry to report I cannot put my hands right now on a uh, study. I think it was from Congress taking a look back at uh, just how bad Trump's COVID response was. And I'm sorry to note that I know for a fact they were not added to trumppandemic.net because we didn't get around to putting it on there. But we will uh, we'll try and address that and get this, uh, this recent piece up because it, it just outlines all of what's there on the website. Only does it very concisely. For my money, the figure of 163,000 unnecessary COVID deaths thanks to the Trump administration's mishandling of the epidemic is a gross underestimate. And one question people have had throughout this pandemic is why are Americans being hit so hard by the disease? Other countries don't seem to be suffering quite as badly as we are. And the answer appears to be that we're fat. I mean, think about it. Since the start of the pandemic, the overweight and obese people have been markedly more likely to develop severe COVID and die because many of these patients have underlying health conditions such as diabetes that can heighten their risk. And it's certainly true, diabetes, hypertension related to being overweight. They've done a new study now that's found that the coronavirus evidently can infect fat cells and certain immune cells within body fat. That's according to a report in the New York Times, which triggers a damaging inflammatory response. Researchers took fat cells from bariatric surgery patients, which are by definition the obese, and tested whether it could become infected. They found that fat cells and immune cells called macrophages could indeed be infected and that the macrophages developed significant inflammation. The team also examined fat tissue from the bodies of people who had died of COVID and found the coronavirus in fat near several organs. Said David Cass, a cardiologist at John Hopkins, fat tissue becomes a kind of reservoir. He was not involved with the study, but he did say if you are really very obese, fat is the biggest single organ in your body. Noted the Times, the research has not yet been peer-reviewed, but if it's confirmed, its findings could help explain why obese people are at such high risk of severe COVID and why the U.S., which has one of the highest obesity rates in the world, has been so badly affected. Gotta say, I've been besieged by questions from friends of late about what, what to think about the Omicron, what, how that relates to travel, what should we do in terms of isolation, and boy, this whole thing is in flux right now. If the Omicron variant is significantly less virulent and the evidence suggests that it is, and it's also more communicable, which the evidence suggests that it is, well, these are, these are two good things. Being more communicable means it's going to get its way through the unvaccinated that much faster. And yes, uh, the studies show that being vaccinated, even with a booster, is less protective. Um, they, they've been saying that with a booster, people with two shots and a booster are equivalent versus Omicron of uh, people that have had two shots versus the Delta and Alpha variants. So those of you who believe in vaccination should get your booster. Those of you who don't believe in vaccination should get Omicron. And no, I'm not really wishing it upon you, but whether I wish it or not, you're at increased risk. Especially, Ms. McMillan adds, if you're on the tubby side. 
And here's a COVID-related stat that kind of wakes you up. One in 100 Americans aged 65 or over has died from coronavirus. It turns out that 75% of COVID fatalities here in America, about 600,000 deaths, have been in people 65 or older. All right, in the one minute we have left, I want to jump, jump to a more uh, sunny scientific topic, which would be NASA's mission to nudge an asteroid. The 1,200-pound golf cart-sized DART, which is Double Asteroid Redirection Test Craft, is set to slam into the asteroid Dimorphos next September. Dimorphos is a small asteroid orbiting a larger asteroid named Didymos. The, what, what I think is the most intriguing part of this is that from Earth, we can then measure the orbit of the smaller asteroid around the larger and can tell how successful we were at imparting energy into it. It's pretty cool stuff. I might have mentioned some of this before, but I want to mention it again because it's just so cool. And the best part about it is they don't need to involve Bruce Willis. But if NASA does come up with a plan for Bruce Willis to detonate a nuclear bomb inside the asteroid, we're in favor of that one too. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We need to take a short break, so let's do that. We've got plenty more. Stick around.